It's great to be worshipping with you this morning. My name's uh, Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And today we're continuing through our series on kingdom questions, looking at questions that were asked by Jesus and questions asked of Jesus. And uh, quick poll, who read the passage that was sent out on the email in preparation for today? And who realized that it was the wrong passage? Uh, sorry about that, but the outcome is you, you read more scripture this week, so you're welcome. Um, today we're, we're looking at, uh, we've been looking at quick questions leading up to Easter and leading up to Jesus on the cross and Jesus rising again. And um, today we're, we're coming to the, one of the most central questions of Mark's gospel. And I say that because uh, Mark is all about convincing us, the reader, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then challenging us, how are we going to respond to that? I know this because right from the get-go, Mark 1, verse 1, says uh, the gospel or the good news, the story of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So right from the get-go, you know what Mark is on about. In the middle of the book, uh, one of the uh, the pinnacle of the book after all this um, teaching and healing and all this stuff, it comes to a point where Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, brash and bold Peter, jumps up and says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes. And then a whole other thing happens after that, which we'll cover later. And towards the end of the book, in the passage we're going to read today, uh, when Jesus is on trial before uh, the, the Jewish leaders, he is asked, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am. So what we're going to do, we're going to look, we're going to read our passage together. Uh, we're going to look at uh, some of the history behind uh, who is the Messiah and what's he come to do. And then we'll think about how we're going to respond to him. So let's get into it. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Mark chapter 14. We're going to read from verse 53 through to 65. Give you a second to find that. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, where he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, and their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple uh, made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with human hands. Yet even their testimony uh, did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men bring against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. uh, The high priest tore his clothes, 
Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they condemned him as worthy of death. Then they began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with this, their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So we have this scene uh, in the courtroom of the high priest. Jesus has, uh, you know, after the scene where last week we saw um, Jesus at Simon the leper's house and the Mary who broke that expensive jar of perfume on Jesus. Then we, uh, we have the Lord's Supper and Jesus goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then uh, Judas comes to betray Jesus and he comes with this group of militia to uh, to arrest Jesus, and they do that, and they take him to the high priest's court, court so that they can find an accusation, uh, some reason that they can go and uh, condemn Jesus to death. Now, something we need to remember is this is first century Israel where uh, they were occupied by Rome, and so the Jews didn't actually have authority to condemn someone to death. What they needed to do is they needed to establish a um, uh, yeah, establish an accusation and then take it to the Roman court in order to be, uh, the Romans uh, give him um, the capital punishment because they were the ones that had authority. So that's why we see a whole series of courtroom scenes. Jesus is jumping uh, from, from one court to another as people try uh, to condemn him to death. And they're doing this at night and they're doing it fast. They're doing it illegally, not according to how they're meant to do this Jew process because they want to find a way to kill Jesus, a reason to condemn him to death. And they bring the whole Jewish leadership. The, the high priest is there, the chief priest, the elders, the, the teachers of the law all come together and they're, uh, they bring other people in to bring testimonies against Jesus and they bring false testimonies. All these people coming to, to testify against Jesus that he did that. He said this. But the thing is, there's nothing stuck because nothing agreed. Even though they had all these people coming, sharing falsehoods about Jesus, he remained silent. They even, be, they even brought people to say uh, that Jesus said he'd destroy the temple. And in three days, it would be built again. And that's actually half true. But even that accusation didn't stick. Because, of course, Jesus was innocent. He was innocent. But finally, the high priest uh, gets up and calls it out. He, he recognizes what's going on with Jesus. He says, are you the Messiah, the son of the, chosen, the blessed one or the chosen one? And when he says blessed one, chosen one, what he's referring to is, is another name they used for God because he wants to avoid, uh, avoid using God's name as, as they do in Jewish culture. Uh, like they say, Lord or Blessed One. Say, Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? He says. And Jesus answers, I am. I am. And then we hear uh, the point of Mark's gospel right from the lips of Jesus' accuser, accuser, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. Now, Messiah is, is a weird word that we don't really use in, uh, in today, like Oh, I just, just went and messiahed something. Like we, don't, we don't use that word. So what does it mean? And in order to understand what's going on here and understand what Mark is doing, is we need to have good biblical theology. Now, that's a word that might scare some people, but effectively it means it's understanding the story of the whole Bible. 
And, uh, you know, as much as I'd love to take us through right from Genesis 1-1 and go all the way and really unpack the story in great detail, we're going to hold off. Uh, we're just going to go on the journey that Mark takes us through, uh, through the Bible story to highlight for us who is the Messiah and what's He come to do. And the reason that we need biblical theology, we, the reason we need to understand the story uh, of, of the Bible is so that we, we understand who Jesus is and what He's come to do. It's like if, if I were to go to a, um, a bookstore and I see that there's this new book uh, from my favorite author, a, a crime novel, a mystery, whodunit, and I go, yes, I've been waiting for this to come out, I can't wait to read it, but my friend's there, and, and they need to read it as well, and we're both so desperate to read it, we have to read it straight away, so we go, oh, all, right, all right, look, this is what we're going to do, we're going to take it, we're going to tear it in half, you can have uh, the first half, and I'll have the second half, and my friend goes away, and, sh- and they read uh, the book, and they discover, oh, there's this murder in the library, and there's all this financial scandal, and all this story leading up to, you know, who is it? And they're left uh, on the last page. They don't know who's done it. And then I to pick up my book and I, th- I read, the butler did it. But I don't know, what did he do? Like, we, we reach, often when we reach, we read the New Testament, we read the Bible, we see, yes, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. But what's a Messiah? What's the Messiah? This is why we need good Biblical theology, we need to understand the story of the Bible to unpack who Jesus is and what has He come to do. Now, the word Messiah, uh, sorry, we often refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ. Now, that's not His last name, that's actually His title. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for anointed. And, uh, and it's anointing as in you anoint someone for a purpose, uh, so you anoint a priest to be a priest, you anoint a person to be a king, uh, and that's how it was used. And that word, Messiah, was picked up in the intertestamental period. So after the Old Testament was written, before Jesus came along, uh, that word was used and kind of developed into this catch-old word for all the, the promises of the Old Testament, leading to this promised person, this promised king who's going to come. And so they used Messiah to kind of describe uh, this person of promise from the Old Testament. And probably the reason they use Messiah comes from uh, Psalm 2, where God, uh, where David's writing and, he, uh, and God talks about the nations coming against him and his anointed one, uh, the rulers and band together against the Lord, Yahweh, that's the personal name for God, and against his anointed. And so that word anointed was picked up and used to describe uh, the the person of promise who's promised in the story of God's story. And we read about what that promise is and the nature of him. Uh, One of the key passages is 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. And what's happening here, this, this verse needs a bit of context, because what's happening is David is speaking to God, and he says, God, I want to build your temple. And that's really important, really significant in Israel's history, because if you remember, they've, they've, they've been brought out of Egypt, and for a while they're traveling around with a tabernacle or a tent, a, a, a temporary a place for God to dwell with His people, and they get into the promised land, and they establish a king, and now it's time to build a permanent house, a permanent te- temple. And the temple's really important because it's the place for God to dwell with His people. And there's a whole, it's the way that God's people can approach God. 
And they, they do that through a series of sacrifices, and particularly on the Day of Atonement, uh, which was one day a year, the high priest was... Uh, through a series of sacrifices to cleanse his sin and to cleanse the sin of the Israelites, he was then able to enter the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple, the very place that God dwelt for one day of the year. The high priest had that privilege, and that was how, through the temple, Israel Israel, uh, approached God and and dwelt with God and, and had a relationship with God through the temple and through the high priest. Now, that information is important, so stick that away in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it later. But I tell, I tell you all that because the context is David saying uh, to God, I want to build your temple. Uh, but God says, no. Uh, from 2 Samuel 7, the second half of 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so what God says to David is that you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to establish a kingdom for you. And his offspring, not him, but someone, one of his ancestors, one of his offspring, will build the house for God. Now, Solomon, David's son, built the temple, uh, but he didn't, it didn't fulfill that second half of, he wasn't established on a throne forever. And so, there was one who was going to be coming after, who would establish uh, God's temple, build God's house, and establish God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, it's not just a house and a rule. It's actually, a kingdom is a group of people around a king. And so this promised Messiah is a king who will establish God's kingdom forever. And he does that by building God's house, building God's temple. Now, there's irony in our passage today, back in Mark, where they accuse Jesus of saying that he's going to destroy Uh, destroy the temple and then rebuild it again after three days. And the irony is that's a half-truth. Jesus never said that he was going to destroy it, but he did say that he would rebuild it. And Jesus died and he rose again. And by rising again through his resurrection, that's what he's referring to. He's rebuilding that temple and the place, the means of God... um, sorry, people approaching God, the means of God dwelling with His people, is not through a building, but through a person, through Jesus. And so, the promised, the Messiah is the promised King who will establish God's King forever. And the high priest is not ignorant of these passages, like he's, he's, he's the high priest, he should know the Old Testament, he should know his scriptures. He's not ignorant of the, all this, and he sees what's happening, he sees what's being alluded to, and he just d- decides to call it out, and once and for all, ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Chosen One, the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am, I am. Now, it's interesting, like I said before, the high priest avoids using God's name, but Jesus says, I am. And in the Old Testament, when God revealed himself to Moses and revealed his personal name, what he said was, I am. I am. Yahweh. And Jesus 
follows that up uh, by saying, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And he connects the Messiah with the other name for the Messiah in the Old Testament, the Son of Man. And this is taken from Daniel 7. And in this passage, this is, uh, this is written uh, a vision that Daniel had written hundreds of years before Jesus. And the context of this is Daniel has a vision of all these different kingdoms who will come and, and, and rule over the world, but each one uh, you know, is pretty gruesome, but then is, is destroyed, and then another one comes in and is destroyed, and another one comes in. But then Daniel says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Daniel prophesies, predicts uh, this one who would come, this son of man, this Messiah who would come and establish an eternal kingdom. And this Messiah would have authority over all of the world, all power, all dominion. And it will be one that lasts, that doesn't last for a bit and then someone else comes along. It will be an eternal authority, eternal rule. And Jesus alludes to this. He brings the high priest and the reader's attention to this, that he is the Messiah, the Son of Man, who comes and sits next to the Mighty One. And he will come in the clouds to rule and judge. And so the Messiah is the Son of Man who will reign supreme over everything. There is nothing that does not fall outside of His authority. There is no person that Jesus will not judge and has authority over. And that, bring, that brings another irony uh, to our passage today in this courtroom scene where there's all the Jewish um, uh, uh, lawyers and, and accusers and leaders and the high priests and the teachers all coming accusing Jesus and judging Jesus, but the reality is that He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the one with all power and dominion over all things. And if anyone should be judging in that courtroom, it's Jesus. But He's not. And when the high priest asks Him, are you the, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am. And He alludes to His uh, dominion and authority. The high priest is furious. Furious. He tears his clothes. Now let's just pause on that. The high priest tearing his clothes is not just a really angry act. Uh, you know, oh, he's so frustrated, he tears his clothes. It's actually something profoundly significant in what the high priest has just done. Because if you remember, uh, the high priest is the one through whom Israel and the people of God can, can come to God, can dwell with God. Uh, that once a year, uh, through the high priest, through all those sacrifices and the means of cleansing sin so that they can approach through the high priest. And um, uh, in the Old Testament, it, it talks about the high priest. If he were ever to tear his clothes, he defects from his role as high priest. And so we have this scene where Jesus, uh, Jesus claims to be the Messiah, and then the high priest tears his clothes, defecting himself from his role as high priest, and then asks the question, who is now the high priest? Who is now the one who intercedes between God and His people? 
And I wonder, did the high priest do this prophetically, whether he realized it or not, uh, of tearing his clothes and defecting himself as a high priest? Is that a prophecy of what happens in the next chapter after Jesus dies, when he's on the cross, after he breathes his last, uh, in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, the temple curtain that separates uh, the rest of the temple from the holiest of the holies, the very presence of God, that temple, is the curtain is torn when Jesus dies on the cross. And so in this, in this, in this scene, in this exchange, the high priest tears his, his clothes and no longer does Israel approach uh, God through the high priest, but through another high priest. And the temple curtain is torn and no longer do uh, God's people approach God through, through that curtain that separates God and man. But it's through Jesus the one who stands between humanity and God is not, is not a, a, just a man, it's not a curtain, it's Jesus, is the means by which we approach God as the Messiah. It's profound, the, the high priest tearing his clothes. And he accuses Jesus of blasphemy, and they sentence him to death. They uh, begin spitting at him. They, they blindfolded him. They struck him. They, they said prophesy, and they took him away uh, to beat him. And this, this verse, is, of all the verses I was studying this week, um, this is the one that really broke me, really got to me. I was, I was reading this in a cafe, doing some, doing some study and, and reading and, and praying, and... Um, and I read this, and I was just uh, blown away of this, this king, this ruler, with all this authority and power and position and reputation and status, and they took him and they spat on him. They hit him. They taunted him. They, they, um, they beat him. They tortured him. That's the king of the world. And why did that happen? It was because of my sin, of what I've done. And I was, I was just, I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And, uh, and I was getting really emotional, my eyes were watering, almost so much so that someone um, on the table next to me uh, said, oh, what book are you reading? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, I was really emotional, so I kind of like croaked back, the Bible. <laughs> and um, and I, was, you know, I was also hoping to establish a conversation there, but like, it, was, it, it, it didn't happen. Maybe something else happens in the future, God works in mysterious ways, but... Um, uh, yeah, it's a big deal. So this king of the world, he's come to, to establish his kingdom and make a way for God's people to dwell with him. How does he do it? Through suffering. Through suffering. And there's pretty clear uh, analogies here back to another passage from the Old Testament, another prophecy in this story of developing who is this promised king. Another uh, piece of the puzzle is Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. And it says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that, that before its shear is silent, he opened not his mouth. Do you remember how Jesus was silent against the accusations made against him? By oppression and judgment, he is taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? 
and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Yet his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall... Excuse me. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he was he bore the sin of many, making intercession for the transgressors. Is this passage written hundreds of years before Jesus, prophesying about the Messiah, the promised one who'd come to establish God's kingdom, not through rule or dominion or power, but through sacrifice. And it had to happen that way because of our sin. Jesus had to die because of what we've done, how we've uh, forsaken God. And instead of acknowledging that God has authority and rule over every part of our life, we turn another way. We, we decide, no, 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 I'm king. I want to do my thing. And an and a, a, uh, eternally holy, good God cannot associate with sinful people, with wicked people. And so something needed to happen so that, so that we could approach God. And in the Old Testament, that was through the temple. There was a whole series of things and, and the curtain and all that separation demonstrating that there's a problem here that needs to be overcome. And, and that's why I had all the sacrificial system and the high priest uh, so that, to really establish that we need to be cleansed from our sin in order to approach God. And Isaiah 53 adds to the puzzle that the ultimate sacrifice that cleanses us and removes our sin is not a lamb, but a person. It's the servant, his righteous one, the suffering servant. And it's done by dying. Jesus, the king who came to judge the world, submits himself to judgment. Jesus, the one who belongs on a throne, hangs on a cross to pay for our sin. This is Jesus the Messiah. When the, when the high priest says to Jesus, are you the Messiah? Did he realize how much weight was behind that word? Are you the Messiah, the one who's come to make a way uh, for God to dwell with man? Are you the Messiah, the one who will establish God's eternal kingdom? Are you the Messiah, the one who reigns supreme over everything? Are you the Messiah who will come and suffer and die for my sin? So what do we make of the Messiah? What, how do we respond to it? One of the purposes of Mark's account of, of Jesus is to challenge us, how do we respond? What do we make of this, this man, this, this Jesus? And in, even just in the chapter that, uh, that we're reading from this week, chapter 14, there's a whole range of different responses uh, to Jesus. Uh, we see um, the response of Judas, who has been traveling a lot wrong with Jesus this whole time. He heard Peter's confession that he is the Messiah. He knows who Jesus is, yet he's blinded by greed. 
and he chooses to betray Jesus uh, for a few silver coins. And I wonder how often are we blinded by greed, blinded by what the world has to offer, so that we don't actually submit to Jesus' authority and think, hey, I might have it better now. I could have it better now with this money, with these possessions, with this reputation, with this whatever. We get blinded by greed, and so we get blinded to who Jesus actually is, the King of all kings. Or we might, might be res- respond like uh, the high priest who tore his robe, he, and he condemned Jesus to death. He, he, he um, accused Jesus of blasphemy, and the irony of that is that he was the one blaspheming, because Jesus was telling the truth. And uh, he was blinded by his pride because he, he was the high priest. He didn't want to lose his place and position uh, in, in that society. And, and same with the rest of the Jews that were with him. They were blinded by pride as to who Jesus was. And, sorry, uh, uh, author um, John Steinbeck says, power does not corrupt, it's the fear of losing power that corrupts. And all these people fear losing power because they're prideful, they want to hold on to that. And I wonder how often do we, uh, are we blinded by pride, blinded by the things that we want to hold on to, that we are entitled to, that we deserve, that we uh, that belongs to us, that we're, we're holding on and not ready to let go? What part of our lives that Jesus does have authority are we holding on to? Is it our wallets and, and responding in, in generosity, handing over to God and trusting in faith, uh, providing for us? Is it the comfort we enjoy and appreciate here in cozy Adelaide? Is it our sex life? Is it our thought life? Is our internet history? Is it how we treat uh, people behind closed doors? Is it how we speak about people uh, when they're not there? What are we holding on to? Or we feel entitled or we feel like we have the authority and we're unwilling to let go of that? I think one way that uh, the church has, has been um, shifting over the last few years is, is we're forgetting the nature of the Bible, that it's God's Word, God's authoritative Word. And as we, uh, as we approach the Word, we've forgotten what it means to submit to its authority. So when we come up with questions and, and we, we, we think about our ideals and our values and our worldview, and we come to the Bible, we interpret the Bible through our ideals, our values, and our worldviews. Rather, rather than interpreting our ideals and our values and our worldview through what God has revealed as truth through His Word. Which authority are we submitting to? And ultimately, Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King. His eternal kingdom will never end. His is the greatest authority. Or we might respond like Peter and be blinded by fear. A story that comes just after our passage. Peter was in the courtroom. He followed Jesus and, and the arresting party uh, into the court of the high priest, but stayed on the outside, warming himself by a fire. And a, a young woman comes and says, oh, aren't you, aren't, didn't I see you with that Nazarene, that, that guy? And he says, oh, no, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't there. And then she, she asks again, no, I'm pretty sure you were with him. He says, oh, no, I don't know who that is. 
And she got another group of um, people and said, yeah, no, no, you're, you're from Nazareth, like where Jesus grew up. Surely you know him. And he comes and curses her and, and says, no, no, I, I do not know who that person is. He's, he's even unwilling to say Jesus' name. And then he hears a rooster crows and he remembers just like not hours before when Jesus predicted that he would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows, and he breaks down and weeps because he was blinded by fear. Fear of what this group would do to him, that he, you know, maybe he would be killed as well, or maybe he'd be put in prison and tortured just like Jesus. His fear led him to deny who Jesus was. His fear blinded him to the identity of Jesus. The reality, of course, is that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the King. And Peter eventually does uh, go and he does die for Jesus. But after establishing his church, and he's now reigning with Jesus forever in heaven. And I wonder, when are we blinded by fear? Now, it's a very different uh, risk, very different reality for us in the West to uh, what we heard from our friends in the Middle East uh, before. I can't even mention their names in case it goes out on the web because what they fear is uh, very dangerous, very real. But here in um, Cozy Adelaide, what we have to fear is a bit of persecution, a bit of an awkward situation. And I wonder, um, I I said this earlier and I've said this uh, in the evening before, we need to get better at living in the awkward situations living in the awkward. Because if we're afraid of those awkward situations where if we invite someone to Easter and they say, oh, no, I don't do the church thing. That's lame. We're like, oh, this is a bit awkward. Or we invite someone to do Alpha and they're like, nah, no, nah, I don't like talking about all that Jesus stuff. That's silly. We're like, oh, this is a bit awkward. And we, we, if we fear those awkward responses, but the reality, what might be awkward for us could be life-giving for them as we introduce them to Jesus, the Messiah, the promised King who's come to save. So we need to live in the awkward because the awesome happens in the awkward. I think I'm often challenged by that, and I've said it a lot. I need to learn to live it a bit more. But responding in, yeah, are we blinded by fear? Because Jesus is the Messiah, how are we to respond now, there was another response at the beginning of uh, chapter 14. And of all the different people, the one person to get it right, besides Jesus, of course, he always gets it right, but the one person to get it right uh, was Mary, or the, the woman who, came, the, who was apparently a, a prostitute or who came and anointed Jesus uh, with her jar of perfume. We heard about this last week, but it's worth covering again. Because she was the one person who got it right. And a woman, right? We, we're hearing a lot about oppression of women uh, this week, which is horrible. But here's the Bible portraying the one person who got it right was a woman. Because she realized who Jesus was. It's no accident that she breaks a jar of expensive perfume on Jesus. Like, that's what they did to anoint people. She anointed Jesus. She messiahed him, right? She knew he, who, who he was. And she wasn't blinded by, by fear or pride or greed. She gave her, her largest uh, possession, her most expensive possession, 
And she wasn't afraid about what other people said about her. And she, she, she didn't hold anything back. She gave it all to Jesus. And that's the response that I think Mark is calling us to, recognizing that Jesus is the King of kings, that He's His authority over all of us, and He's come to save. And what the, what the response that Mark is calling us to be is be like Mary and give it all to Jesus. Come to Him recognizing the, the, the reality and the gravity of our own sin and brokenness and setting that pride aside and not hold, clinging on to those different sins or whatever, but actually coming and confessing, getting healing, getting uh, forgiveness, and handing over our entire lives in worship of this King, of this Messiah. Because Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of kings. The promised King who established God's kingdom who reigns supreme over all things and who died on a cross for you and for your sin. How will we respond to Him? Let me pray. God, we thank You so much for Your Word and we thank You so much for Jesus, this promised King that You you were talking about right from the beginning of of, of history, of uh, a king who would come and who would save your people and would uh, establish your kingdom. And God, we just want to uh, come before you and we pray that we would not be blinded by our greed, that we would not be blinded by pride or by fear, but we would recognize and proclaim and tell people of Jesus the Messiah. God, we, we acknowledge and confess when we've failed to do that when we've held on to parts of our lives that we're not willing to hand over to you and your authority, for times that we've let the world influence us or we've let our own hearts deceive us rather than submitting to your word and to what you say is true. And God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for Jesus, that he is the one by whom we can approach you, that we can fulfill our potential and our purpose of living with you. We praise you, Jesus, and we thank you. We pray more people come to know this awesome truth, this amazing person. And God, we pray that you would use us in that. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.